Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer, the host of Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai, where we're going to talk about the Japanese concept of Ikigai or living a life of purpose. Here you're going to hear inspirational stories from all different types of people who are finding their own life of purpose. You're going to hear about how they found their Ikigai and what they do every day to live an integrated life. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome wherever you are in the world tuning in to Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai. I am here today with my guest who's amazingly on dry land. It's Lowell Shepherd. He is on a very interesting life journey at the moment. I'm going to spend a moment just reading through Lowell's multi-hyphenate bio. It's amazing. And then I'm going to say a little bit about how we met. So Dear Lol is an author, speaker, social entrepreneur, former minister, fellow of the Royal Geographic Society, husband, father, long distance cyclist. And you wrote here, aspiring sailor. I would say that you are now, you know, if you sail, you are a sailor. Maybe you're not an ancient mariner, but you are indeed a sailor. He spent his entire adult life working with established NGOs, many NGO startups. As founder of Hope International Development Agency Japan, Lol has seen the growth of Hope JP to be in the top 2% of charitable organizations in Japan with the coveted Ninte certified tax deductible status. Yes. For the last 20 years, he's worked as an informal advisor to companies and boards in the areas of ethical decision making, thought leadership, with a focus on community legacy. And he's dedicated much of his life to social and environmental improvement projects. I scroll down, it's very impressive. As an author, his book, Never Too Late, was published in four languages and was the catalyst for his latest social enterprise called the Never Too Late Academy, of which the flagship flagship course is called Daring to Realize Your Dream. And he moved onto a sailboat two years ago in Tokyo and is currently sailing full-time around Japan, training for his solo crossing of the Pacific. And his voyage is being documented by the History Channel. The pilot is, is being aired. It says in 2022. Is it maybe there's been some changes on this, I think. There, there has been some changes. I can tell you the reason why. But we'll get into this bit. This was a bit I was like, is this accurate now? But we'll we'll dive into it. But here it goes. And he found out about these many other people, never fellow, never too laters. So he started the Never Too Late Academy to help others gain the courage to realize their dreams. And of course, as with all my guests, you'll be able to see links to all of his projects, his channels, his social media down in the bottom. And after this um, chat, I really hope that you follow and support his work. Amazing. But we met, as we were saying, you know, today we're recording on March the 11th, which is a very momentous and uh, sad day in Japanese history, the day of the uh, triple disaster in Tohoku. And um, yeah, we met just after that, because at the time I was working in the same company as your lovely son, Ryan. Um, and I was remembering as I was preparing for this, I gave him some advice. He asked me like, oh, Jen, what should I do? You know, my internship's about to finish. Should I go back to university? And I was like, yes, Ryan, you should. You should go back and finish it. Recruitment will be here. Just get that degree. You've seen how people just, he ignored me totally. And he's having an amazing life. So uh, <laughs> thanks, Ryan. <laughs> Uh, don't ask for advice you don't want to don't want to keep I'm only joking he's such a great guy and I'm so so happy for him anyway but we met around that time because Wall Street Associates a co- company we were working for at the time was supporting hope but then we got more connected you know we had the corporate sponsorship and these lovely dinners and kind of nice fundraising but we got more connected after the disaster because hope was arranging a domestic 
sort of supplies and volunteer project and we I was working in marketing at the time and I was like what can I do like I can't start you know hey who wants a job you know it wasn't the right tone it wasn't the right thing to do but we had this huge network of candidates and clients all around Japan and people wanting to do something and so we partnered up and I remember Jeff got in a van for you Jeff Manjapane got in a van and drove up to Tohoku and you shared the information and we could use you know our network to support um support those people and that's when we first uh, got to know each other if oh. I remember correctly yeah. And I don't think I actually met you face to face for some time after no, that. We... It was all by telephone, but uh, you know, your your energy is there whether I'm with you in person or on a telephone line. And uh, I was infected yeah. by, yeah. I mean, you asked all the right questions and uh, logistically you, you were astute and you understood what the longer term issues were too. This was more than just... Uh, giving some pictures for a company newsletter. It was genuinely to help people rebuild. Yeah. And uh, so thank you. Thank you. You and Wall Street did at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to like a way to be useful. You know, I think that's what many people feel, right? The situation in, in the Ukraine, in Ukraine even. Gosh, I'm so like, that's my background of the way I was raised when it was, I'm still remembering the former Soviet Republic. Yeah, you know, that that situation, people want to help, they don't know what to do. And I think when there's organizations that give people a channel to do that, um, it's really powerful. So thank you for all the work that you do on that. And, and one of the things about, I'm really interested, I saw a photography project uh, in Tohoku that was talking about Ikigai. And I'm really, really interested to, so maybe you know someone we'll talk about it after, but if anyone listening knows, it always strikes me like, how do you have a reason to live when everything that you have known and loved just gone in a moment? Like, I'm not even, people are not just like surviving. They're really thriving in those communities now. And I'm just like overcome by, you know, we talk about like, oh, my life, this, this, COVID, blah, blah, blah. It's like, my family are safe. Everyone has their health. Really, really have nothing to complain about. So, yeah, I'm just, you know, so amazed with those people who are, have really, really suffered and still can say, yeah, I have a kika, I have a reason to be here. My life has meaning. I feel connected to society and, and learning new things. Amazing stuff. Well, is that where you were inspired then with Ikigai? Not, not particularly. Focus mm, some of your life on this. But it's one of the things that I'm, I'm really inter I'm interested to find out more about that, like how to find how people do find a sense of ikigai when they've had extreme trauma or loss in their lives, because there are, you know, that's part of the human condition that people, people suffer and also people go on to do amazing things. And I just think those are really important stories to be told and for people to hold and, you know, the work for hope, but hope is just so important and having hope that, there's a brighter day is coming for you for whatever is happening right now. Well, could I just interject the story there? And maybe this is maybe the last question that you sent me beforehand that I considered who, who, who else inspired you for Ikigai, et cetera. So speaking of hope, you know, most of our work is outside Japan. And in fact, when this happened 11 years ago, within hours, I was having hundreds of emails. So what are you going to do? And I kept saying, you know, we're overseas development. We can't deflect any of our resources. Otherwise, we create more victims. So I was saying give to the Red Cross. So that's 
the only mechanism at the time. But within 24 hours, the then president of Oakland Marketing, yeah. Harry Hill, who was also chairman of the Hope Board at that time, said, Lowell, because I yeah. said, this is outside our mandate to people. And he said, you can't say that because we are all outside our mandate right now. The whole archipelago has been shaken, uh, literally, as well as mm. uh, in every other way. And so he said, because of that, and because Oakland Marketing trusts hope, I've just left the board meeting. This is Harry talking. And on Monday, we're going to deposit the yen equivalent of a million dollars into your account. And then he mentioned himself and Robert Roach and Nakamura, the three principals in Oak Lawn. Together, they're going to give another half a million. And they were challenging all their suppliers to donate to Hope 1% of whatever Oak Lawn had spent the year before. It came to about two and a half million dollars, which meant that, and he said, and we just want you to get up there and do things within the Hope framework, protocols, values. And if you do see a drop in funds coming in for overseas projects, you can also use that to top that up. And to me, that was, it was enlightening to me that not, no, bear enlightened donors is how I describe them because they saw what the issues are and they genuinely want to help. But that's kind of just a setup to say a lady you should interview sometime is the director of Hope in Cambodia, Kim Lee. She stands about five feet, two inches tall. She's a powerhouse. She was evacuated. She was forced evacuation from Phnom Penh back when the Khmer Rouge came in. Within six months, at age of 12, within six months, she had lost all of her family. And three years later, they were trekking to the forest between Phnom Penh and Prasat province on the edge of the Cardinal Mountains, moving at night under the control of the Khmer Rouge. She said they were like ghosts walking to the forest just every few meters. And she was now like 15 years old. They were reduced to drinking their own urine for water. And as, on, on that night, she was walking thinking, like, this is not life. This is not living. I should take my life. And then she had her epiphany. Said, no, I'm going to survive this so I can help my nation recover and never experience this again. And that became her ikigai. Literally, the next morning, that was her ikigai. So I even get a tingle thinking about her. She's like a sister to me now. As she was walking at age 15 and having the epiphany, I was actually in the refugee camps on the other side of the Thai border working with Cambodian oh refugees. And it was a really dark place. So she and I have had a connection now for over 20 years. So I recommend, and she speaks good English, as well as French and Vietnamese. Wow. And Khmer. Wow. It'll, it'll be in English interview. No, that's amazing. And, and I think... Yeah, you know, when, when it really comes down to it, like, yeah, Ikigai is, it's that there's always another option, yeah. right? We always have an option as, as, as uh, humans with agency. We can do what we want. And um, I'm so glad that that's the option that she chose was to, to survive and to, to move forward. And, and that's, yeah, it's powerful. Like the world is just full of amazing people. You know, I think um, the, the guests I've had on this and I'm remembering, you know, we reconnected in 2020 
I think it was around May. It was like there was a little dip in COVID and Angela Ortiz's book was um, launched. Right. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that's when you told me about your, your wild... We all went to a party. We all went to a party and were like, hello, <laughs> can I touch? Shall we? What do we do? Yeah, it was like a brief a brief opening and it was amazing. And um, yeah, and, and you you spoke and supported Angela and you you shared about your your wild uh your wild sailing plan so let's get into that a little bit about like where you are in your life now tell me about um wahine is it i'm just pronouncing it right wahine is my boat's name yes yes tell me about this new woman in your life and um yeah what's what's going on lol well well that woman in my life my boat is currently tied up in fukuoka a year ago last weekend i left tokyo and became full-time cruising around Japan, uh, training for my uh, solo Pacific crossing. Um, and, and I started off this year really bumpy. The boat nearly sunk, rescued by the Coast Guard, had to yes. get repairs. And so I decided to take the month of March off uh, just to have a break. It was getting pretty cold on the boat anyways. I got the repairs done. She's ready to go. And also the last few months, we've been trying to film the pilot for the History Channel series. And at first it was going to be Amami Oshima uh, in October. And then there was the Kagurishi, which was the Labath uh, Thomas field floating down from the new island formed off of Tokyo last August. And it clogged up harbors. So then we diverted to Nagasaki Goto to film in January. I arrived three days into the film crew and then Omicron numbers rose and the mayor said, Dame, so then we, we pivoted to Ikijima. I said, I, I can be there in a day, about 60 kilometers, 65 kilometers. But on the way to Ikijima is when I had an incident at sea, boat nearly sunk. And there's a video on my YouTube channel if people are, uh, have any interest in that. So, so now the boat's repaired. I had to get towed all the way to Fukuoka, get it up on a crane, and I've taken a month off. And we're filming the pilot for History Channel next month on Ikijima, April 19th to 23rd. I'm, I'm not sure when it's going to be aired. Originally, if we had filmed in October, it'd been aired in Golden. So, but, you know, as a child, you know, I, let me just say, uh, and I won't, I, hopefully none of this is boring, and I'll, but I'll make it very short. Um, I, was, I was a mildly autistic child. At that point, I don't think autism was talked about. So I was described as having a speech impediment. I couldn't talk till I was three years old. I was socially awkward. And now we know it was, it was mild autism. But the dividend was, I thought a lot. Like I still can't talk properly. I, and I stumble over words and it's reflected in my bad typing as well. And when I, the more syllables a word has, like the word syllable has three, is like a graphic text I have to read in front of my eyes. So growing up, I learned to compensate for it, but also because I was socially awkward, I read lots of books and I thought a lot. Yeah. And, and that's when some dreams were conjured up. And many dreams, traveling the world, uh, taking care of the planet. I was a very young, kind of environmentally mm. disposed person, but also the adventure of sailing and sailing across an ocean. And... I've sailed a bit over the years, a little bit in Europe. As a teenager, I did dinghies. When I courted my wife, I used my friend's 
uh, 26-foot sailboat in Vancouver, and we'd go out on weekends, etc. And then I gave up that dream when I came to Japan thinking, and I came to Japan because of my wife's dream. When we were married, I, the agreement was that uh, if she would go with me to England where I wanted to live for a time, I would return to, with her to Japan where she was born and raised. She's like you, blonde. And, are you blue-eyed? At green, but yeah. But okay, well, so she's blue-eyed. Um, and I know it's not politically correct in Canada terms, but I describe her to Japanese friends as having Canadian hardware and Japanese software. Um, Japan is her home. So we moved here to follow her dream. And I gave up the dream of sailing, thinking it's too expensive in Japan. Plus, my language sucks, Japanese ability. Uh, and you have to get a boat license. But then I discovered the Tokyo Sail and Power Squadron. They helped me get my license. Uh, this was four years ago. It opened up my eyes to the sailing world. And that's where I thought, I can do this. Mm. And then suddenly, the dream, and I, and I say suddenly because it happened in a number of hours, as it has often happened to me, when a disposition or compulsion or dream suddenly becomes a specific goal. The dream was to have a sailboat live on it right. one day sail across an ocean. But once I knew I could do those things, then I thought, hmm, yeah, I'm going to buy a boat. I'm going to sail it to Vancouver to see my mom. Ah, and I'm going to do it by myself. And then, and then some dreams, and you know, dreams are related to Ikigai, right? Mm. You know, it, it's, what, it, it's what's in your subconscious as you sleep that reveals itself, it, it triggers the imagination, and it's what you wake up with. Mm. Um, most of my creative insights have come in the middle of the night, not initially in the form of a dream, but it's woke me up, oh, wow. and the brain is just buzzing. But some dreams, some goals and purposes are immediately robust. Mm. You can blurt them out. Jennifer will state it. I'll say, yeah, that, that's Jennifer. She'll do that. You know you'll do it. We all know you'll do it. But there's other dreams that are fragile. Yeah. Because you they're so audacious. You just say, whoa, really? You really? So I had to ponder it for a time and ask myself lots of questions. Really? Yeah. Is this why do you want to do this? What's the motives? What do you and and I had to answer those questions and then little by little with Concentric circle shared, you know, with life first, family, closer friends and sailors and, and test it out. And the more I shared it, the more the dream seemed to be affirmed. And then I've now locked myself into it. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's called Pacific Solo. I want to sail to the garbage patch. That's one of the sub goals because I'm an environmentalist. I've been focused on clean water through hope most of my adult life. I want to bring attention to the oceans. And also at a, at a deeply intimate level, I want to go to what I'm calling Nemo North. In the South Pacific, there's a place called Point Nemo. Point Nemo is the place on Earth furthest from land in any direction. Uh, it's a mysterious place, sailors say. It's, where, it's this, a spacecraft graveyard. That's where they throw all the satellites and space station oh, remnants. Wow because there's nobody there to harm. So I was intrigued by that. And so I, I had a mathematician friend help me figure out the coordinates for 
in a similar place in the northern hemisphere, the North Pacific, furthest from that in direction. I called it Point Nemo. No, not Point Nemo. Nemo North. Nemo North. Go in, mate. I'm, I'm very like finding Nemo. It's just going <laughs> in my head. Sense. Just keep swimming, but you don't want to swim. Just keep sailing. And and Nemo North to me is something deeply, and it's private. Although I I'm happy to talk about it, but it's kind of spiritual. It it is. It, it has ikigai texture to it uh, mm. because I had a, I realized my my thrill is not getting to Vancouver that that's where I'll finish the voyage but really it's to get to that point where I'm so alone where in the you know Emmanuel Kant talked about what evokes reverence and awe is looking up and looking yeah. within well I've added something to that I want to go to a point where I Consider the expanse above, the mysteries within, and the terrors below, because I'm scared of the deep. And I don't want to stay there. I'm not a, I'm not a monk. I have become a very social person. I've lost the awkwardness, um, I think, anyways. At least I'm comfortable with people. So I want to return to all my relationships. But to me, at this point in my life, that's important. Although I can say I've already had many Nemo North moments. Moments of solitude, at sea, on the boat, terrifying moments. In some ways, I'm feeling I haven't achieved it completely, but the spiritual experience I was looking for has been, I've had those moments. Two questions people ask me most about this is, what does your wife think? And that's asked in a variety of ways. Does she love you? <laughs> you know, how big is your life insurance policy? Uh, but the other question is, are you scared? And I say, of course I'm scared. I have a particular philosophy of fear and failure where they're not enemies, they're friends. And you, they're constant companions with whom you have to work out your relationship. But also to quote somebody else in terms of this specific goal and dream, the fear of not doing it is now greater than the fear of doing it. So it hasn't always been my ikigai, but now the fact that I'm going to sail across the ocean solo or even sail from Shikoku to Kyushu. That's something that, that focuses you because the stakes are high. And I want to mitigate risk, but it gets me up in the morning. Wonderful. I, oh, so many things. And I was intently listening and didn't take my normal notes. So I'm trying to remember what I wanted to pull back on. Um, one was you talked about the, you said Nemo North has the texture of Ikigai. So what's the texture of Ikigai to you? What, I, there's just a, such a beautiful phrasing. Well, they resonate with each other. They're, they're cousins because when you wake up, you know, what is your life's worth? What is your legacy? What causes you to roll out of bed in the morning, which I think is the cultural usage of that term? It means you need, you know, Ikigai is a magnet. It draws you. Mm. It draws you out of bed. It draws you to your computer. It draws you to go out for the run, to do the marathon. Whatever steps are involved in realizing your purpose in life, it's a magnet. It draws you into all of that. And Point Nemo to me is a magnet. I can't. And not many people talk to me about it because the context is an ikigai, number one, but it just sounds so quirky and idiosyncratic. And they don't get it. I think it's it's magical, actually. It's magical. 
you're right. And I think there's a magic to Ikigai. Yeah. It is, it is something that, you know, Paul Dupree, who we both know, yes. and we were talking hey, informally Paul. about before. Hi, Paul. He was, uh, he was saying, Lowell, you need to be known as the Shoshin guy. And I, my Japanese is, is lousy. So what, what what's that? He said, beginner's mind. Mm. And what I'm realizing, particularly at this age, what also gets me up in the morning, every morning, is there's so many things to learn. Yes. And I discovered in reading about Shoshin, it's not just about having a disposition to always trying to be better and learn, but the Shoshin concept is also the excitement of a baby discovering yes. something. Like walking for the first time or, or you know, learning you can do this or having an insight. And I'm not trying to become known as the Shoshin guy, but I'm living the Shoshin life. Like what wakes me up every morning is that I have to learn so much yeah. to accomplish this goal that the learning is the journey, not just the physical movement through water. I love it. And there's um, actually a framework that was, I think came out in about 2012 from some researchers, Imai uh, Osada and Nishi, and it's recently been um, validified or verified in English as well, but it's called the Ikigai Nine. And three of the points are so relevant to what you're talking about. So there's nine different points you can kind of use as an assessment to kind of measure Ikigai across these different dimensions. And the three points I feel are so relevant to what you're talking about, about Shoshinka and like the beginner's mind is I'd like to learn something new or start something new. I'm interested in many things. Oh, actually, there maybe there's four here. My life is mentally rich and fulfilled, and I would like to develop myself. And I just think those really encapsulate what you're just mm-hmm. talking about this. You know, I'm here I am. You know, you, you sailed for a bit when you were younger, you didn't for a long time. And then now it's not like you're just kind of, you know, going out on a, a little a little dinghy. This is a serious commitment to learning. <laughs> like there are facts, there are skills, there are rules. Um, you know, there's just a whole uh, ecosystem to understand. There's, yeah, laws, bylaws, different regional things, all of these things to do. This is... Um, yeah, so you you would need to learn learn something new for sure. So just another comment with Ikigai too, yeah. and you know, beyond all of that, beyond point Nemo, which is a very self-centered thing. I mean, so much of this is selfish. And I keep saying that to my mm. family. I know I'm being selfish. And they for the most part say no, except my daughter-in-law, Ryan's wife, says, Dad, it makes me angry because you're making us worry about you. And, uh, you know, she's, they're also supportive and proud, but, but there's something even larger than that for me. And it is what you read in my bio, which in the bio is described as community legacy. But I am concerned with what I leave behind. And the focus of that now is my grandson, mm. Ryan, your former colleague's son, who's now yeah. 10 years old. No way. And I, I, I want to leave something with him that when I'm long gone and in whatever format the YouTube channel is or books or whatever, he can say, my grandpa did that. And in fact, I'll tell you about an epiphany I had coming back from Cambodia. I was, I think, 61 at that point. I had a donor from Tokyo. He was in business class. I was in the peanut section. 
quite happy to be there. He tried to actually upgrade me, but uh, he thought he could use points. It was going to cost a thousand dollars, and I wasn't worth that much. To him. He didn't like you that much. <laughs> so I was in the back, <laughs> and I was just thinking, you know, I had people in hope saying succession plans, da, 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 and this, and of course, it, it all made sense. But having just been in Cambodia and met families who I've now known for many years, um, I just said to myself, you know what? I'm never going to retire. Now, in terms of coming off a of payroll, you know, that's one thing. But in terms of your life's purpose, in terms of your, I didn't use the word guy, but I said, there's still so much I want to do. And so I'm not going to retire. I'm just going to find other ways to accomplish my life's goals. So all that to say, I came home and told my wife first, stop talking to me about retirement. I, I told Mackenzie, my younger son, who's a film director. And then I had this night with Ryan, Maria, and Eli at Grom's Cafe on the first floor before below your old offices. Were you still with? Yeah. And one of my favorite places to eat. It's, it's no longer. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> and so I just explained all this. What I just basically yeah. told you, I told them. Eli's two years old. He's playing with toys beside me. And then I, with a little bit of moist eyes, I said, and Ryan Maria, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing it for him. And at that point, Eli put his toy down, put his little arms around my neck, and said, thank you, Grandpa. And you know what? It's a highly subjective moment. It, it doesn't prove anything. It doesn't, didn't mean suddenly I had a million dollars. It changed nothing except it sealed it for me because he got it. You're a mom crying. I'm a grandpa crying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if this is waterproof mascara, but. <laughs> so what wakes me up in the morning? My grandson does. Because I, I want him to be able to say, my grandpa did that. Thanks. Well, that's so, so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so allergy season here in Japan, everyone. So watch uh, <laughs> out for that bit dusty in my room. Uh, there's a, a great researcher based in Tokyo, uh, Dr. Akihiro Hasegawa. His, his work on Ikigai is absolutely fascinating. And, um, you know, one of the things that he talks about, you know, there's Ikigai in the past that we get through re-exploring memories and, and, and those, you know, you look in your phone and, and, yeah, and just now, right? You remember that conversation with Eli, you remember that hug, you relived it. And in that moment, I'm pretty sure you felt a sense of Ikigai. And as I heard your story, I felt it too, like there's, there's a reason to be. We have the Ikigai in the present, you know, the beautiful cup of coffee, the moment when you're on the boat on your own. And also you feel that, you know, connection to all like three levels of existence. And then there's dreams and imagination of the future. So you have this very kind of concrete plan, but also maybe it's a little bit more vague, am I, like how Eli is going to do with it, but there's still something about this, a dream of the future of him as a grown man, you know, and how he he draws on that. And, and just that, that dreaming, that vision is, is an ikigai of itself. Mm. You know, it's such a, a beautiful concept. And whilst the, the Venn diagram is a really helpful coaching tool, I do love it. I think yeah. it's fabulous. It's really direct questions. It's just such a more nuanced and amazing concept. So I'm really, really happy with what you've shared because it's, I think it's going to help a lot of people to go, oh, that's Ikigai as well? Oh, oh, I have it. 
I don't have this like one point in the Venn diagram, but am I excited about what my grandchildren will remember me for when I'm no longer on this planet? Yeah, that, that gives me a reason to get up and be here. And I love what you said. So I've still got so much to learn. I've still got so much to do. That, that, that energy, that life force is, I think, um, not, not to be taken for granted. It's a real gift. So tell me, you're, you're a, an advanced student of Ikigai, compared to me at least. Um, so I, I'm learning about Ikigai, but I mean, there's different levels, right? So in terms of what gets us out of the morning, there is that long-term, that is that Eli, our children, what the planet will be like when we are long gone. But there's also the immediate plans to get to realize the dream. And what I'm concerned about with my fellow never too laters mm. is there's a lot of dreamers. Yes. We all dream. But you have to roll out of bed in the morning, put your feet on the floor, and know what the steps you're going to take to actually make that happen yes. incrementally. Yeah, and I mean. a lot of people aren't walking towards the dream. They're caught up in something else. Yeah, I think that that is the other piece, right? Like, because we can have the dreams, but yeah, we have to sort of move into this action. And that's what, you know, Never Too Late Academy is about. And there was a very interesting uh, data point that you shared on an interview with your brother. And you said that the YouTube was, was telling you that most of the people visit or visiting your site or visiting YouTube were men in their 40s to 60s. Like that was your core demographic. So, so what is it about that specific demographic that your message of Never Too Late is, is really um, calling to them? Well, first of all, the demographic has changed slightly. It's, it's still a very small YouTube channel, just shy of 3,000. And at that point, I think it was 1,000. So, and at that point, I think it was 92.4% male because YouTube, once you're a partner, it, it, uh, it gives you all those analytics. Um, now it's still about two thirds max. Yeah. 65, 70%, it varies video to video and how far back mm. you go. So I have more 24 to 35 year olds. I have more women. And for some reason, women in Singapore, I don't know why. Wow. Why that's happened. <laughs> Um, so Very there's niche. something about that theme. So I don't know the question other than there's a lot of men like me who uh, still, you know, we're living longer lives. And in the West, at least, there's a, an abundance of resources. And even somebody like me, my life in the nonprofit sector, uh, I don't, I didn't have a mountain of cash to throw at this. So I've had to find ways to fund it. But I'm in a place where I can do that. I can get sponsors, etc. And so there's a lot of like armchair mm. sailors, particularly say, so, oh, well, yeah, I want to do that one day. And I'm going to watch this guy. But I also think there's a, in the West, particularly, and, and there's a version of this in Japanese society, which I'm, I'm trying to understand more, but with men in the West, a lot of men have never really come to believe they're men. And the root cause, I think, is we lack, we've elasticized adolescence. The word adolescent is only just over a century old. Arnold Van Gennett, uh, an anthropologist, created the term to describe what he saw as, as a widening period between childhood and adulthood. And then the word teenager mm. was invented by American marketeers after the Second World War, kind of common knowledge. 
and marketing dollars went to exploit this gap. And, and I raised two sons. So, and I was intrigued by Nelson Mandela's Rite of Passage, this book right. I read at the same time when I was involved in some research about the effects of video games on adolescent boys in England in the early 80s. This is when video games were cassette tapes. And the question was, is there video addiction? So a number of organizations, including Levi Jeans, funded a research project, and it was non-conclusive. They said, we can't find real evidence mm. that there's video game addiction right. among boys between the ages of yes. 12 and 15, but we do see some signs of it among the fathers of those boys, which that then caused me to ask, begin to look at the role of the puberty rite of passage. And I wrote a book about it called Boys Becoming Men. And in fact, the Never Too Late book, it was also part of that. It was going to all be one book to begin with. And the publisher said, no, let's do two different books. And women are enablers because you use phrases like, and I'm not saying you personally, of course, uh, but wives, mothers, girlfriends, daughters will use terms like, oh, mm. boys will be boys, men with their toys. And you said we could speak frankly. Yeah. Here. So you know, when, when does a boy become a man? Mm. Is it when they leave high school, get their first job, lose their virginity, college, da, 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 or get their driver's license, et cetera? Um, my assumption is, and I didn't write a book about girls, but I know nothing about girls. The only girls in my life is my wife and two daughter-in-laws, but I didn't raise any. But I think there is a biological change that my assumption is for many girls, if not most, that biological change will prompt the conversation mm. with another woman, whether it's a friend, a mother, an auntie, and basically have the facts of life explained, if not explained yeah. already. I'd be intrigued to know what your view is. Yeah. Boys, the equivalent would be, and forgive the frankness, would be a <laughs> wet ring. Go for it. Would be a wet ring. And you don't tell anybody about that. Mm. Like it's, everything is so secretive with a boy. And so I, and then you see a lot of men are just still unable to take responsibility, make commitments, etc. So my fellow never two letters, I'm not laying all that on them. But I think, I think for some of us, there's still a need to achieve something manly. And I don't mean to be sex, sexist mm. in that, that many women need to achieve things that are humanly as, as well. And there's many women sailors, but for many men, there's, they never had a moment where like Nelson Mandela had after a six week uh, school to prepare them for manhood, to have another man say, welcome, mm. you are now one of us. And so we're still trying to, at very least, impress ourselves that we can do that. Yeah, we don't have those rituals, do they, to, to mark the passage? And as you said, you know, the we're seeing many yeah. more people with, yeah, extended adolescence, both men and women, you know, still living at home with their parents. Like, um, and you know, there's a practicality to it, but. Um, I remember I had a, a terrible bias when I was a hiring manager and I said, 
I really would prefer someone who is not living in their family home. It wasn't something which I said, please make sure that this is on the resume. But I wanted to know, like, people are paying their own bills. People are adults, right? You know, they're, they're managing all of those, those complexities of life. And I know there's many reasons why people are staying at home, but this was kind of in the era of Japan where we had what the phrase, which was the parasite single. Um, I don't know if people still use that, but this was um, usually a woman actually of a certain age who was unmarried, still living at home, uh, working, and all their disposable income was frittered away on uh, fashion and travel. God, it's so misogynistic now. I remember it actually, staring myself, saying, "Like, wow, that was a broken, uh, a broken model as well." But there's something about you know, when when you become adult. I definitely don't think I be- I became a woman when my period started. And actually, talk about secretive. This is like, oh, I don't think I've ever announced this on a podcast. I lied about when my period had started because I went to an all girls school. And so people were like, have you started yet? Have you started yet? And I was like, (laughs) yeah, because it became a point where people were kind of getting picked on. So maybe there is something in that, that it's it's definitely an initiation into the world of womanhood. But I had an older sister, so I kind of was, I knew what was going on. So I could sort of talk about it. And yeah, I I didn't stop my period till I was like nearly 15, 14, 15. It was actually quite late. And now I look back and go, thank God. Thank God. Bloody, literally bloody awful. Uh, but that's a different subject. It does remind me every month that I'm alive, though, for sure. There's a, I'm not sure. I, it doesn't make me get out of bed, though. Definitely makes me stay in bed. Anyway, we digress on it. But yeah, there's something about that when you take those responsibilities for yourself as an adult, like have those challenges. And then maybe there's something about, I, I was thinking about this demographic. And especially from my perspective in Japan, I sort of feel like many men are not given the space to dream. There's a pro and con to not having, you know, women's participation in the workplace for sure. But women are allowed to opt out. We don't have to aspire to become a manager to move up the corporate ladder. And that option is not there for a lot of men. They have to have, you know, the stable income. They have to be the breadwinner. And if they said, oh, I've got, I want to do this side hustle or I want to do these things, it's, it's really quite frowned upon to move outside of that. So I just feel this something which is quite stifling for yeah, I think you're absolutely right. people in that. So let, uh, let me tell you a little story about my other son, Mackenzie, mm. who's a film director. Yes. And we're both Ryan and Mackenzie. And this isn't always the case. And it wasn't the case for me, although I had dreams, I really struggled to find which path to walk once I became an adult. And it ended up I became a minister for a time, as you read. Ryan and Mackenzie both illustrated early in life what their passions were. And Mackenzie was storytelling. Ryan was making money. And uh, I remember counting money with Ryan when he was five years old. And he started his first uh, company when he was 15 at high school, et cetera. With, with Mackenzie, it was storytelling. Nice. First, a comic strip, four-frame uh, strip. Uh, the character was a worm called Spud. Then he wrote two novels uh, between the ages of 10 and 12. Never published, of course, but in terms of you know, writing out a full story and character development. Then at age 12, I brought home a camera from Singapore, which unknown to me could do 60 seconds of video. Otherwise, it's still camera. He discovered the function and began to make Lego movies. 
And then at age 15, he came to me and said, Dad, I need a new video camera. And as a parent, you know, you're, you're not always sure how, how much influence you have on the formation of their, of their dreams, even of their ikigai. And I've never shared this publicly before. I don't think Mackenzie will mind. Mm. Um, I've never heard him share the story. So maybe it didn't have as much effect as I, I think it did. But he came to me and, and he said this. And I said, well, have you found the camera? He says, yeah, I have. I said, how much is it? He said, $5,000. And I was kind of like you all. I said, how are you going to pay for it? And then he went, oh. And then I, I saw a moment as a pair. Uh... Mackenzie, you know, there's a lot of people who are talented who have creativity. This goes back to the stifling conversation, um, the issue that you raised. And you know, whether it's playing sax, oil painting, writing books, movie making, whatever, for whatever reason, they never make a living from it. And as a result, by the time they're 30, 35, 40, 45, it's been squeezed out of their lives. And they have some regret and they miss it, even though they may suppress it. I said, and, and I think sometimes they do it because they assume they can't make money from it. Others are snobbish. And they don't want to prostitute their talent. They don't want to taint it with putting a price on it. Sell out. What I do is priceless. Yeah. Um, but, so there's a number of reasons, but, but they end up not being able to do it anymore. But if you can learn how to monetize, commercialize, I think was the word I used then. So here's the mm -hmm. deal. Bring me a business plan. And if you can show how you'll pay me back within a year, I'll, I'll put it on my credit card. So I don't know whether it was days or a couple of weeks. He came back, scribbled on an A4 piece of paper. Very rough. It wasn't a professional business plan. But first of all, he found the same camera for $3,300. So it forced him. And good. It, and then nice he had this plan and he, he <laughs> paid it off within six months. And Mackenzie has never done anything else but make films. And he's been nominated mm. three times at Cannes Film Festival for Best Short Film Asia. He won twice. If you're seeing the IKEA ads, if you watch TV, all the IKEA ads last year have been his. He's done Nike seven times, just another, like one Red Bull, Tiffany, gets to interview lots of great people. And, and he's never had, he never defaulted to English teaching as a lot of kids who've been raised here in international schools do, at least in summertime. And he, he, he knows what his purpose He What gets him out of bed in the morning is to tell stories now on film. And he's never had to do anything else. But he learned an important lesson in my mm. view. I can make money yeah. from this. Yeah, exactly. And therefore, it doesn't become so. And that's, you know, some, sometimes, um, you know, ikigai purists, you know, who, who are like, uh, oh, well, from a Japanese perspective, right, we don't talk about, you know, the money thing is not really there. And, and I agree. But how fabulous if you can, how fabulous if you can, if you can spend more of your time on this planet, as brief as it is, doing something that makes you feel incredibly amazing and having a money does make the world go round. You need to have these things to, to support that and to support your family. And so if you can marry the two together, like more power to your elbow, like why not dream that? Why not? Why not have that? But also, if that's not not your the way that you want to, because of whatever you said, like people don't want to, you know, sell out or however they um, think. But 
but don't assume from the beginning that it's it's not possible and the route might be a bit circuitous as well so but it sounds like yeah in that moment there was an opportunity for your son and he really went with it so I, I think I'm taking away the importance of like being open to those opportunities for yourself too and, and when I started on this stream and I have a one of my senpais before I bought my boat we were going through crisis and this and and uh, I was trying to keep price down. And, and he said to me, well, well, if you can't afford this dream, find a dream you can't afford, which kind of makes sense. But I said, but no, I'm not going to let the lack of money stop me from doing this. And my good friend, Mike Alphonse, who's, who's uh, on the, the board of uh, Never Too Late Academy, along with some of my other close friends and uh, et cetera, you know, he says, some of us do our best work when our back's against the wall. Because he actually appears in one of the, I, do, I just got it, releasing a course now on, on how to pay for your dream. And one of the modules is on using your own money. And I've got a module on sponsorship, on crowdfunding, everything I've done. I'm just saying what, what I've done. But he made a good point. You know, he was emphasizing in his lesson, you have to be cautious. You have to make sure you take care of your family. You aren't sacrificing commitments. But then he stopped, paused, and breathed deeply. But really, the main message I have for you is have courage. And that's when he said, some of us do our best work when our back is against the wall to step out. And you know, that, that's my, and I say to, that's what I'm saying to people, it's never too late. Even if you can't afford it, don't let that be the, the reason that causes you to walk away particularly in this day and age. Yeah, I remember um, Andrew Manterfield. Um, hello, Andrew. It's been a while. Um, said a great, a great thing to me, which has stuck with me. And when I was first starting my business, um, he just said, never let money get in the way of a good idea. Exactly. Never let money get in the way of a good idea and like find a way, find a way to make it work. And I think that um, that's actually, you know, one of the amazing things with your experience, because you have had that experience in NGOs of fundraising like you know how to ask people for money and there's none of this like oh can I do um these are just skill sets though they're skill sets and mindsets that that anyone can learn but that having the dream and that what I loved what you said earlier on like I think you said something like the pull of not doing it became stronger than the fear or something like that please can you remember what your words the fear of not doing it was now stronger than the fear of doing yes. it. Yes, yes. Yeah, m money matters, but not as much as we think. Yeah. And there's always a way to find a way. You know, it's an old adage which sounds shallow because it's used so often, but actually there's great power in this. Where there's a will, there's a way. So what wills me out of bed in the morning? I will find a way to get to that point. That's drawing me forward. Wonderful. Oh, I'm, I'm so sad to say that we're nearly at the end of our time. I feel like we could do a double episode today. But if you have a final message for anyone who is listening, um, who thinks maybe it is too late to follow their dream to make something happen, what's, what's the one thing that they can do today? Well, I think, you know, have a disposition in life towards, th these are my three C's, uh, compassion, um, curiosity and courage and, and, and nourish those things. And to young people, I would also say, 
it's never too late to start early, right? So like Mackenzie didn't wait till later in life to pursue his dream of being a storyteller. He started at, at a young age. And in Never Too Late Academy, we simply want to help people discover the courage and the tools to realize their dreams. Yes. And if people want to hear more of you talking, they can follow you on all the channels. They can sign up to the program. They can get it direct from the horse's mouth. Um, everything is available. And um, uh, yes. And Jennifer, I didn't ask you this beforehand, but actually we have a camp because this is a year since I began to actually realize my dream by sailing full time. Um, I'm giving away a hundred copies of my book. Oh, never too late. And all the people have to do is uh, if they see it on Instagram or my YouTube channel, just say yes in the comment. Oh yes, I saw. Then I'll push privately. Well, I'm I'm happy to you know say the same thing on your podcast. You know, once I've got rid of the hundred, I can't. I don't have any more, <laughs> but uh, happy to make it the same offer to your wonderful. Your all right, we'll get. We'll make sure we get that in the show notes, and uh, everyone can uh, have have their chance to do it. I just love, I love the message that you're bringing, Lol. I think it's, it's so inspiring and so important with Ikigai, you know, we're, we're and, and in Japan and the many, many countries in the world, we're living longer lives. And one of the secrets to longevity, just having a really good time, um, no regrets doing the things that you wanted to do. And I think the more, um, the more stories, the more instances that we see of people like making those things happen, of course, early in life, but literally not thinking that the, the ship has sailed and it's never too late and you can you can go off and do it. I think it's so inspiring. I'm really grateful for um, your time and your leadership, eldership, and just sharing sharing these stories with uh, with all of my listeners. So thank you so much. My, my pleasure. I was asked recently, where are you going next? And I said, you know what? Where the wind and the waves take me. And this person said, oh, that needs to be your next book. <laughs> but all that, and this maybe is the closing note, so I'm, you've already done your closing. But <laughs> life throws its curveballs. Mm. We have to pivot. We don't know where the wind and the waves will take us. But there's always, there's always a way to find a reason to get out of bed. Amen to that. And, and life presents new opportunities. What a brilliant note to close on. Thank you so much, Lol. And everybody, please follow, support. And remember, it's never too late to start living your ikigai. Good luck, everyone. And we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, Lol. Bye. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope that you found something you could take away from the episode to help you find your own ikigai and integrate it into your daily life. And I'd love to hear exactly what resonated with you. So pop over to see me on LinkedIn or on my Facebook page. You can find the links in the show notes below. And let me know what you thought was the most important takeaway from the podcast today. And sharing is caring. So feel free to share this episode with one of your friends who you think could benefit from hearing about living a life of purpose. Looking forward to see you on the next episode of Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai.